everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. I live in my profit and loss statement where I'm just counting every single penny that goes into my cost of goods sold, whether it's the cost to ship to me, whether it's cost to ship to my customer, the fees I'm getting charged by my credit card companies, cost of my boxes. It's like entropy. All things tend towards chaos. Well, everything in your P&L tends towards higher costs if you don't stay on top of it because you're just going to spend more and more money. How does a guy who used to sell fighter jets move on to build an e-commerce company that sells single blade razors? It's an interesting question with an even more interesting answer. And on this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Patrick Kudu tells the tale and gives some insights into the world of e-commerce along the way. Patrick is the founder and CEO of Supply. And even though the company has been in business since 2015, 80% of its total profits have come in just over the last several months. So what's Patrick's secret? In today's interview, Patrick dives into the nitty gritty of what changed, including how he finally discovered exactly what profit margins he and most companies need to hit in order to achieve sustained success. Learn what that number is and much more on this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Welcome to another episode of Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles. And today on the show, we have the founder of Supply, Patrick Cadill. Patrick, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you on. I was doing a little bit of LinkedIn stalking and your background at first when I stumbled on your LinkedIn, I'm like, is this the right guy? I saw like a background in selling fighter jets. And I wanted to start there with you of kind of like a little bit of your background before you founded Supply. Sure. So I spent my my uh, education is in mechanical engineering. And before starting this company, uh, I spent eight and a half years uh, in the corporate world. I worked in the aerospace uh, industry. And in particular, I worked on military aircraft. Uh, we make some fighter aircraft here in Fort Worth, Texas, where I'm from. Very cool. And what what does that look like behind the scenes of working on aircraft? I saw that you did, I think, an $8 billion deal. So I wanted to hear a little bit more details around that. Yes, I worked on it. I, I, it would be very, very arrogant of me to claim that I, I was responsible for that deal. Um, yeah. So in in general, um, and I'm happy to go deeper if it's if you want to. But in general, uh, the U.S. government works with foreign militaries to you know arm and equip them with certain pieces of equipment that we think you know, that are necessary for them to have and to support interoperability between allies. And so one of those uh, aircraft was called the F-35. And I think the deal you're talking about was maybe uh, the deal with South Korea we did probably five or six years ago. 
mm-hmm. where uh, the U.S. government sold, I don't remember how many, 60, 70 aircraft to, to South Korea. So that, that was a really phenomenal uh, experience getting to fly there and negotiate with our partners over in, in South Korea and spend a lot of time kind of immersing myself in their culture and just a cool, cool thing to be a part of. So I learned a lot there, but at the same time was uh, ready to get out when I, when I left. Yeah, let's, so let's hear a little bit about your almost a decade at, I think, Lockheed Martin, and you're starting to get the entrepreneurial itch. So what was happening um, while you were there and what had you make the jump? Yeah, so um, as outrageously cool as the subject matter was of what I worked on in my previous life, it was as awesome as the subject was, it was as equally terrible uh, to work in a corporate environment like that one mm-hmm. for, for me personally, not for everybody, but, but for me yeah. and, and especially working with the U S government and, you know, just procedures and processes and just layers of bureaucracy and, and just led to boredom and frankly, you know, anxiety and, and depression personally, just wanting to be fulfilled in my work and, and not finding the ability to be so in, in what I was doing and, and seeing, you know, I, I tend to plan and think ahead a lot. And like when I visualized the future of my life there, it was like I could literally see myself sitting at the same desk, like doing the same things that I had been doing for like the next 30 years of my life. And so mm-hmm. for years, I was kind of, I wasn't raised as an entrepreneur. I don't really have that in my family. Didn't know the first thing about starting a business. But for years, I was always thinking about kind of what what is kind of my path out of this life and kind of into the next one and um, always had ideas and never really kind of jumped on them because it just, I wasn't a risk taker. I was an engineer, you know, taking risk was uh, the furthest thing from what I was used to. Mm -hmm. And I finally had this idea for a razor that um, I wanted to invent. In general, I, I've always kind of struggled with irritation and ingrown hairs uh, with shaving since the first day I started shaving. Mm-hmm. And I came across this old style of shaving, shaving with a single blade safety razor and just fell in love with it and decided uh, I wanted to try to kind of make a modern version of this old razor that I found. And then in addition to that, just decided like this is kind of, it's kind of now or never to make the leap from this job to doing something on my own. So it was kind of a you know perfect storm of the idea came and the necessity came and, and the opportunity came at the same time and just decided to go for it. Yeah. Yeah, that that's awesome. I think a lot of people probably have those same feelings of getting stuck somewhere. I know I have in the past. Uh there was a point in my previous life when I was working at Fannie Mae and I had the same kind of thing of like, mm. "Oh my gosh, do I want to end up in a semi-government like job mm-hmm. or a corporate job?" And even at Google, it's like, "Oh, fe- things feel so great right now. Like, should I leave?" I feel like I'll get, mm. you know, stay here for a long time because it's so comfy. So I think a lot of people have the same kind of feeling of like, now or never, I better jump before I get stuck here for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. And like the further you go in those career paths, like the harder it is to leave. What, what, can, a, what can an aerospace engineer that has worked as an aerospace engineer for 20 years, you know, do other than that, you know, after they've been there mm-hmm. so long? Yep. Yeah, I had the same feelings. Mm-hmm. So what year did you um, start supply or did you start something before then or was Supply your first company? Supply is my first kind of real company. Um, prior to starting Supply, which we started in, company started in January of 2015, but we launched publicly in August of 2015 with our first Kickstarter campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and prior to that, I started a, um, a website 
uh, with one of my best buddies called Razorpedia.com. And that was like, I think we started in 2012 or 2013. And long story short, it was a kind of razor review website that really was kind of a, just kind of a stupid fun thing to do with a buddy on weekends where we wanted to kind of test razors and try to find the best razor on the market. And it, actually the, the website ended up getting pretty popular and we ended up selling it later. Awesome. But that that's really where the razor kind of story began with, with uh, shaving. Yeah. I mean, I read that the Razorpedia was like the number one Google search result and it had like 1 million organic page views over 30 months. So it sounds like it was actually a pretty big deal. Yeah, it, it was pretty successful. We, um, we were fortunate enough to like, we literally launched, um, I think the same week that Harry's launched. Good timing. Yeah, it was good timing. And we wrote a blog like the same week about Harry's and like, we ended up like kind of like if you searched, you know, razor reviews online or Harry's razor review, you know, we were, uh, we were right at the top of the search results. So it was kind of dumb luck. And, um, so we started to kind of monetize it with ads and we didn't know what we were doing. We were making it up as we went. You know, the, the best thing that came out of that was the realization that all these, you know, multi-blade razors that we tested were all, in my opinion, uh, were all trash and just not good razors. And, and it was that website that actually led me down the path to find this old style of shaving, which is this uh, single blade style shave. Yes, it's really interesting how marketing can really train us like, oh, the more blades, the better. And this one has two. Oh, this one has three. And, you know, I, you wouldn't <laughs> even think like getting back to the roots of like you're talking about like a single blade is maybe actually the best way of doing things. Yeah, there's an old Onion article from like 2002. Um, and I think the most blades in a razor was maybe three or four at that time. And the, the title of the article was Screw It, We're Doing Five Blades. And um, <laughs> so they actually like foresaw the, the, uh, the five blade razor. And I think you can actually buy a seven blade razor today. Oh, my gosh. So you have this idea of supply. What did the early days look like? I mean, you have this old time razor where you're like, oh, this actually works really well. Like, what was it like to actually start the company and, you know, find a way to create and manufacture this razor? It was very challenging to say the least. Um, so I had the good fortune of, of one of my friends. I wanted to just make the leap and just like go cold turkey and go all in on the company and the idea from, from day one. I had the good fortune of having some friends in my life that I listened to that said, well, you know, why don't you try to figure out how to make this product work before you just leave your paycheck behind. And that, that turned out to be really good advice because it took me about a year and a half, if not two years to go from Kickstarter campaign, which was kind of the initial rough prototype to, you know, a no kidding supply chain or product that I could actually sell at scale. And I have no background in consumer products at all whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of that kind of two-ish years, you know, was just me making it up. I had no investors. I had no, you know, real network or, you know, people to rely on to help me figure out how to kind of make this product. And so a lot of it was just kind of figuring it out as I went and making a lot of mistakes and fixing those mistakes when, when they happened. So how were you finding ways to, I mean, you get your a really well-funded Kickstarter, like what was the next steps after that? Did you go and start meeting with people who manufacture razors already? And you're like, here's my new design idea. Or since you're an engineer, were you actually like trying to make your own? Yeah. So um, no, I did not make my own. We've always done, you know, outsourced supply chain and, and production since day one. We're currently actually not working with any of our early manufacturing partners. Uh, we're, we've got a really phenomenal um, network of manufacturers that we work with today. But in the early days, you know, it was 
a lot of Googling, although, you know, that doesn't really get you too far when it comes to manufacturing. And then just a lot of calling and cold outreach to anybody that I could get to, to pick up the phone. So I think I probably called, you know, somewhere around 50 or 60 different suppliers that you know, I just found through Google or recommendation from somebody who would talk to me, but didn't want to do the work for me or, or something like that. And I eventually settled on, um, and this is a very common practice in the consumer products space. You know, I eventually settled on, and I never really know what to call them, but kind of an outsourcing uh, kind of middleman sort of company where like, this is what they do is they go find factories to make you uh, your product. So oh, interesting. yeah, I found a guy local to me. I don't remember how I found him. I think he was on Upwork and like he managed the manufacturing of our first batch for me. Very cool. So what led you to change manufacturers? You said in the early days you had one manufacturer or two, and then you don't use them now. What happened and what kind of lessons did you learn through switching manufacturers? So uh, we launched our campaign August of 2015. I promised delivery by March of 2015. And that was in my mind plenty, like that was more than enough time. That was like, I was being you know generous with that timeline. And the manufacturer knew that they were on track with that. And, you know, March came and went, no products, you know, April came and went, no products, May, and then you know, June, I finally, I'll never forget it. He shows, he literally shows up on my doorstep with, you know, a big old dolly of, you know, I think we had ordered maybe 2000 razors or something like that. And mm-hmm. um, he drops them off in, inside my house. And then as he's, as he's walking out the door, he says, oh, by the way, there's a problem with him. And I'm like, oh, now, now you're going to tell me there's a problem. And uh, anyways, it turned out there was an issue with the razor to where if it wasn't used properly, it actually wouldn't even really shave at all. And you couldn't load a blade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a little problem, which was just devastating because I'd already spent all my money that I had raised, I think about $80,000 mm-hmm. on that on that production batch. Uh, essentially, what we did over the next kind of two to three months is I set up a little shop in my garage to try to adjust the razors to make them work. And we did the best we could with that. We, we were very open with, um, with our backers. And that's always like number one thing I always tell young founders or operators is when things go wrong, trying to cover it up or, or not being honest about it with your customers is just going to make it worse. Like you, you need to yeah. kind of be honest. So like, you know, we were telling our customers what's up, like, here's what happened. Here's what we're trying to make right about it. And Oh, by the way, you know, if you want to wait, we're going to start up a next, a second batch with a new manufacturer, but it's just going to take some time. So anyways, we ended up kind of salvaging some of, some of that initial batch. We, we ended up having to scrap a lot of it, lost a lot of money on that first batch. And then we started up a second production line and eventually made it right with our backers and delivered everything we promised. But it took, I think it was the following March before we finished delivering what we had promised. So it took, you know, a year longer than, than what we had told people it would take. The lesson for me is, and has always been at the end of the day, all I have personally that's keeping my business alive is the relationships with the people that I work with. And Mm -hmm. those relationships and that trust is everything. And it's extremely difficult to, on the front end, like determine if you can trust somebody, but 
I always highly leverage towards trust when I'm evaluating a new partner rather than capability, right? Because capability is just kind of table stakes for us to even have a conversation. Something is going to go wrong and what happens when it goes wrong is what makes all the difference. And so that first vendor, his true colors were showed when something went wrong. The vendors I'm with now, things go wrong all the time. But what happens is they make it right. And so that's, that's kind of the biggest learning lesson for me and the biggest advice I can give people is go into business with people that you not only enjoy working with, but can trust to make things right when, when things go wrong. Because that's, that's literally all you have. What, what's written on the contract doesn't even really matter um, when you're as small as me, right? Because I can't sue. I can't sue somebody, you know. Too much time. Yeah. Too much money to even try and do that to begin with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's all about relationships. Yeah, that's a really good point. So on your Twitter, I think I saw that. Um, I mean, you guys have been in business for a few years, but eighty percent of your lifetime profit has come in the last six months. Hmm. And I was wondering. What's the catalyst behind that? Like, why are all the profits coming in now? Is it, you know, better marketing? Like, what's behind the scenes to drive that profit now? Uh, two things, um, <laughs> uh, supply and demand. Uh, so on the supply side, um, I worked all last year. This is another kind of big learning point I've uh, gathered over the years. You know, I worked all last year to significantly approve our uh, gross margins or essentially how much, how much our products cost to make versus what we mm-hmm. sell them. The first four basically years of my uh, company, I wasn't charging enough for um, for my products and, and or they were costing me too much to make. So 2019 was a big kind of cost cutting year for us. Those cost cutting initiatives went into effect on November 1st. So that's the supply side. And then the demand side is November 3rd, we aired on Shark Tank. And so that was the beginning of a big tidal wave of orders. So those two things coincided very nicely to bring us to a place to where we're significantly profitable in a way that we've we've never been before. And that really changes a lot of things for us. That's awesome. So how did you go about figuring out what areas needed to have um, costs cut down? Like, what does that process look like? Yeah, for us, I mean, it's less about, we've always had very low overhead. Started the business with my wife. We've barely ever paid ourselves much. Um, We've had a very small team always. We worked out of our house for the first three years. So overhead has always been very low for us. I always, always, always urge uh, young businesses and founders to, to keep overhead as low as possible. I think a lot of the reason you're seeing a lot of companies go out of business or have issues, you know, this year since COVID hit is they're just not, they don't have the flexibility in their overhead to, to withstand, um, you know, volatility in the marketplace, which is what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yep. that's always been low for us. It's always been a thing that, that I've held important. And then just what it costs us to make our products versus what we charge for them. I had, you know, what I'd consider a friend slash mentor um, get on a phone with me. He runs a very successful men's clothing business. It's, you know, probably 10 times larger than mine. You know, he shared with me, if you're not charging at least four X for your products, what you make them for, you're never going to be able to scale in a meaningful way because customer acquisition costs are just too high to, to let you be able to scale with, with any less margin than that. And um, he's right. And did you take his advice exactly and do 4X of how much it costed you? Yep. Yes, I did. Cool. And what was the price before for a razor? And what did that jump to? 
Yeah, without getting into like the engineering side, which is a little maybe a little boring, but we uh, we didn't really necessarily change the the um, price of the razor. So we have two versions. We have an alloy, what we call an alloy version, and a steel version. The steel version we increased the price um, probably about twenty to thirty percent, and we introduced an alloy version, which is a lot less expensive to manufacture. And we we actually kept and almost kind of lowered the price on that one because we were able to bring our production costs down so much. Got it. Is there anything um, when you're lowering your production costs? I know you mentioned overhead's a big thing, but was there anything with your production costs or like the materials that you also looked at decreasing the prices for? No, I mean, we kind of kept the packaging the same. Uh, I mean, we're always, you know, another thing that you'll probably hear a lot of people, supply chain guys talk about is we're always trying to get like ahead of the curve when it comes to ordering. Um, because like historically, we've always had to rush shipments via air. A lot of our stuff is made overseas, you know, and, and air shipments cost anywhere from five to 10 X more than ocean shipments. So that's always really painful when you got to spend 20 to 30 grand just to ship something mm-hmm. versus two to three grand. So getting better forecasting so that we can order far enough ahead of time to put something on the ocean instead of the air um, is another big thing we're doing. Um, Otherwise, it's just like constant, just like I live in my profit and loss statement where I'm just counting every single penny um, that goes into my cost of goods sold, whether it's the cost to ship to me, whether it's cost to ship to my customer, the fees I'm getting charged um, by my credit card companies cost of my boxes. I mean, it's, it just requires relentless dedication to constantly being in the numbers. It's like entropy. Like it's, uh, you know, all things tend towards chaos. Well, everything in your P&L tends towards higher costs if you don't stay on top of it because you're just going to yep. spend more and more money. Yeah, I completely agree. I think a lot of founders oftentimes avoid looking at it because one, it's kind of hard to read a P&L or a balance sheet or something like that if you haven't um, taking the time to figure out what all the line items mean. Yeah. But then also, like you said, like a lot of things start adding up behind the scenes, whether mm. it's subscriptions or just stuff where you're like, oh, whoa, I didn't realize my credit card fee is this. Like mm. maybe it's actually cheaper just to, you know, get a loan or do this and start thinking differently about like how you're spending your money. Um, because a lot of those costs do add up, especially in the early days. They do. Yeah. And software too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Software's a big one. So yeah. And forecasting. I thought that was a really good point about forecasting in a way that you don't have to airship things. We actually haven't had someone on the show talk about air versus ocean. So I found Mm. that very interesting. Yep. So uh, the other thing I was wondering, or I would love to hear more about is your Shark Tank experience. We've had quite a few Shark Tankers on here um, and everyone's had a slightly different experience. So I want to hear a little bit about um, what that looked like. Awesome. Uh, I mean, it was a once in a lifetime sort of deal. Uh, You know, never, never will forget it. We had a blast. I went on with my wife. We both pitched. We filmed in June of last year, so June of 2019, and then we aired in November of 2019, and just all the way through from the very, I applied three years in a row, took me three years to get on the show, and from the first day I applied the first time, all the way through, you know, the last interaction I had with them after filming, uh, it's just a really class act, up Mm -hmm. and down, just phenomenal people. I'm not talking necessarily about the sharks, although they're all great. Like, you know, you work with them for literally, you know, 30 minutes to an hour. Like you never see them again, but all the people mm-hmm. behind the scenes are just a class act. Um, and just the, the experience of standing in front of these people that you've watched for close to a decade, if not more than a decade on TV and actually talking to them and them 
talking back to you and like saying your name. And it's just like this very kind of out of body experience to where you kind of like in a sense, like black out a little bit and like, don't even really remember what happened at least personally. Yep. But we had an absolute blast. We ended up uh, getting an offer from Robert and uh, accepted his offer. And um, we actually didn't end up closing that deal, but uh, just had a, had an absolute blast. Oh, and you said you didn't end up closing it? No, we did not. I mean, I think that's also interesting to know that not all the deals closed. And there's, yeah, things that maybe happen afterwards that could impact that on both sides. So Yeah, about half of them don't close. Yeah. So... What was it like after you went on the show? I'm sure you had a like a large increase in demand. Like, did you guys, you know, have any website issues or inventory issues, or what did that what did that look like? Yeah, a huge increase in demand. Um, I think in November we did, you know, four x our previous monthly record. So big increase in demand. It really strained our customer service. Um, it strained our supply, uh, not our supply chain, our warehouse a bit. Although we had just onboarded with Shopify Fulfillment Network and they were doing they were doing a phenomenal job of keeping up with things. There was it was more of what was straining was getting stuff in stock from our from our vendors on time. So we had some orders that took us like three to four weeks to to ship. And that, you know, made some customers pretty upset since, you know, they were they were Christmas presents. We did get everybody everything they needed before Christmas, um, which was like my one thing that I wasn't going to sacrifice on. And we, yep. we ended up getting it done. But, but between November 3rd and Christmas, it was, it was pretty painful um, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, the response was, was, was pretty phenomenal. Yeah, that's great. And are you seeing continued demand from that? Or did you start leveraging other maybe customer acquisition strategies or marketing tactics to kind of build on that demand? Yeah, so it really put a ton of wind in our sails. Um, it, it's really kind of helped us kind of upgrade a lot of our business kind of to the next level. But in terms of like sustained demand, you know, no, you're not getting a ton of like post Shark Tank people, you know, like streaming it and, and uh, you know, coming to your website. Although I'm, I'm sure that happens. Um, what it has done for us is it's given us kind of a social proof of being on this national platform. And so we've used a lot of uh, footage and assets from the airing in our advertising. So if you go to our website, you'll probably get retargeted with, you know, some Shark Tank style um, ads. And just in general, it's, it's given us the ability to, to become like taking us from this quiet kind of nobody brand to, I won't call us a household name because we're certainly not, but um, a lot more people recognize us, you know, like, yeah, oh yeah, I've seen that before. Mm-hmm. And um, so it helps with everything. I mean, it helps with not only the company, but like your partners and your vendors are now like even more excited to work with you. And, you know, press finds you that, that hasn't found you in the past. Like we'll be in the Wall Street Journal this weekend. We are just named cool. GQ's best single blade razor of 2020. And so like these things just kind of slowly snowball. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a really phenomenal experience. We're grateful. We're very grateful for it. Yeah, that's great. And such a good reminder of how PR can work if it's, you know, done the right way, because there's all these PR companies who always say that they can help you, but it depends. And it that's does. just a good reminder that it can work well if you get the right outlet and, you know, getting featured in like Wall Street Journal or places like that. Very beneficial. So what kind of digital channels are you finding the most success in right now when you're going about, you're talking about retargeting and like different marketing tactics, like what kind of 
channels are you finding success in? Sure. No, I mean, no surprise, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Google mm-hmm. uh, in in that order for volume. We, you know, we've always wanted to test these other channels like Snapchat and TikTok and whatever, and we probably will sooner or later. But um, mm-hmm. there are some other things we want to spend some more time on building before then. You know, we do a tiny bit of influencer, and uh, that's really kind of, I think, what we're going to start turning our eye to for maybe the next phase of our growth. But yeah, those are those are really the big channels for us. Yeah. So when you were building up supply and when you mentioned Harry's earlier, like the razor market feels like it's been <laughs> pretty popular for people to start companies in. Like you've got Dollar Shave Club, you've got Harry's. Like how did you think about that competition and making sure that you stood out among the other brands that were launching? Yeah, so... Um, our value proposition is very much kind of anti-Harry's and anti-Dollar Shave Club. Um, and mm-hmm. then our positioning and our pricing is similarly the complete opposite. So they're clearly competitors of ours, but I don't really consider them necessarily direct competitors. Um, mm-hmm. What I do consider them is, you know, people that I can steal my customers from. So we put, we position ourselves. So it's a single blade. I haven't really talked much about the product. It's a single blade. Yeah, let's hear about that. Yeah, it's it's a premium single blade uh, razor. And the value propositions are, are there's a few. Um, it's not a cheap product. It's a $75 handle. But the value prop is you, you invest a lot up front, but then you save tons of money over time. So our blades are uh, 75 cents a piece and they last somewhere between eight to 10 shaves. So after you buy the handle, you're spending, you know, if you're shaving every day, you're spending maybe 24 bucks on, um, on blades a year. And then you've got this handle that lasts forever. We actually guarantee it for life. And so you never have to buy the handle again. But then aside from that, the value prop is um, a single blade gives you just as close of a shave as a multi-blade razor. But for roughly 30% of guys, they experience, like myself, really severe razor burn and or bumps, typically on the mm-hmm. neck or in the sensitive parts of the face. And a lot of that is caused by multi-blade razors. Um, we don't have to go that, that deep into it, but, but the way they're designed is works for some guys in terms of giving you a close shave. But for guys like me who have sensitive skin, it actually does the opposite. It, it makes things worse for you. Um, so mm-hmm. going back to Harry's and Dollar Shave Club. So a lot of guys, they just use these razors and they don't, they just think like, this is the way everybody shaves. And I just have to deal with this, this issue and just deal with the razor burn or just not shave. Mm-hmm. And so what we're, we're telling them is no, it's, that's not the case. Like you can actually shave and enjoy it and not like have your face be a train wreck after you shave. So we're slowly, you know, helping guys kind of wake up from this myth that multi-blades are better and that's like the only way to shave. And like, if it doesn't work for you, then too bad. Like just keep shaving and tearing up your face. Yep. How are you going about that education process? Because I was going to say that it does seem like there's quite a bit of education required Mm. for that. And just for like, I mean, you mentioned like shaving eight to 10 times. I'm like, oh, I think a lot of people probably shave with the same blade for... (laughs) A long, long time. I'm thinking about myself. I'm like, oh man, I'm pretty bad at that. So like, how do you go about uh, getting people to change their behavior? Yeah, honestly, it's, uh, it's tough. I mean, I'll give you an example. We, we present in our ads, like why multi-blade razors are bad for your skin. And we literally present it the same. We present the same data that Gillette presents. Like it's on their website. Multi-blade razors are literally designed to lift the first blade tugs the hair out of the skin and like the second and third blade kind of cuts it 
below the surface of the skin. And that's, that's literally how Gillette has designed them to work. And, and people, uh-huh. people accuse us of lying and like making that up. And it's like, no, just Google it. And um, like, you'll see it straight out of the horse's mouth. So the point is like, it takes a lot of education. Like when they don't even believe that you're just, you're just saying what your competitor says. Um, clearly, they, they need a lot of education. So we do it through video. Um, for example, if you buy the razor, you get four emails from me um, the first four days after you buy it. And each one is a short 60-second training video. It's not like this outrageously complex course of learning how to shave with our razor. It's 60-second videos. But um, guys we've learned are very prone to throw instructions out so they don't read anything that we include with the product. Um, so need some fancy we, videos we, like to get in front of them. Yeah. Hey, come look at this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's, it continues to be a challenge, but uh, in general um, video seems, seems to work the best in terms of teaching guys how to do. And actually we're, we're starting up our YouTube channel um, next week to kind of help, help that process as well. Yeah. That's really interesting. Another thing I read I don't even know why I know anything about razors, but I did read an article about uh, like the marketing behind them, how a lot of the um, traditional companies show the razor getting like water all over it and sitting in the shower mm. and that actually degrades the blades and then you have to change it more frequently. And mm. that was like their whole plan. <laughs> Is Do you think that's true? <laughs> or am I just reading like conspiracy theories behind razor blades? Yeah, I don't know exactly what you've read, but I mean, it is true that, that water, <laughs> what it does, I mean, if it sits on a blade, it causes it to rust, which degrades the edge. So, so yeah, I mean, we tell our customers don't, don't leave your, don't, don't leave your razor in the shower or in a damp environment. It'll, we tell our customers not to do that because that's very much true. Yeah. I mean, all these things I think most people probably are doing right now. I'm thinking of myself and our producers typing in there that how long she goes from changing her blades. So yep. I think there's a lot of education to do in the market in general. How are you guys also thinking about new products? Because, you know, these are designed for men, but I'm like, women definitely have a lot of the same issues. Like, are you thinking about launching new products geared towards women as well? Or are you just strictly focused on men's products? For the short term, um, we're focused on men's products. We do have women as customers. My wife, uh, you know, and my co-founder is a user of our product. So we're more than happy to, to have uh, the ladies buy from us. But what, what's really, really difficult, or at least I've found, is to position our product as both a men's and women's product at the same time. And I don't know the best, I'm sure there's a good way to do it, but I don't know what it is um, because the, the two, shaving your face and shaving your legs are two, they seem similar, but they're very, very different things. So I, I think like I'd love to do like maybe different landing pages or product pages because yeah. the, the value props are basically different, right? So I don't know, man, maybe I could use some, I could use some advice for how to sell. Maybe the problem is I just don't know yet how to sell razors, um, you know, to women. Well, it sounds like my team and I. We've got ideas <laughs> <laughs> and we'll team up with your wife and we can all figure it out together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it is on the to-do list. It's just something we haven't been able to get to yet. Very cool. So tell me a little bit about how you developed your website, like the experience. I mean, when you're selling something that kind of needs to be, you know, tried out or you need to hold like the handle to see like, wow, this is a good quality, like piece of steel here. <laughs> like, how do you convey that to the customers who are coming on and like, how did you develop your website experience? Yeah, it's, that's tough. It's really tough. Um, and I don't think we've arrived by any stretch, but certainly made a lot of progress. Uh, we have a very, very talented, um, development company. We work with agency called fuel, mm-hmm. fuel made, um, good friends, good, 
uh, just good people and they do amazing work. So they, they handle just, you know, from the front end and the back end design, they're handling most of that for me. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, um, when we were smaller, I think it's a complete, complete waste of money to spend any money on complex web design. Like there are so many free or very cheap templates out there that work so well. I would encourage people to not spend any money on development and take any money you have and invest it all in creative and start with mm-hmm. just phenomenal photography. Find a very, very talented photographer and spend your money there if you're going to spend your money anywhere. So I have a very good friend of mine who is that person and he takes all of our, our photographs. And so we, we over index on beautiful photography. Uh, we're now at a point to where we can afford, you know, kind of an expensive agency to, to develop our site. And otherwise we do just tons of AB testing. We're always, you know, every month we're testing something new or we're launching a new feature. Sometimes it works, sometimes it fails miserably. And, you know, each month is just an opportunity to, to get better. Mm-hmm. What kind of tests have you seen work versus fail? Because I think a lot of people may be thinking about, you know, trying out some of the same kind of features or tests that you're thinking about. So is there anything that comes to mind where you're like, this really worked well with conversions or, you know, increased like cart value versus this one did not work at all. And it seems like it would have. Yeah, I probably have more of this didn't work than that this does work. Um, Let's hear it. <laughs> I like those stories just as much. <laughs> yeah, well, man, I'm really sad about this one. We just did one where once you add the razor to the cart, there's a pop-up that immediately shows up that says, hey, do you want to upgrade this to our starter set, which is our you know second bestseller aside from our razor? We tested mm-hmm. different variations of that pop-up. We tested it against no pop-up, and there was like no clear winner after... Uh, I think it was two weeks and a very significant amount of traffic. So we we decided not to go with that pop-up. I launched a membership uh, slash like loyalty program in April that uh, the way I designed it was outrageously complex. And I put a lot of development work and dollars into it, let it run for eight weeks, and then I canned it. That was painful <laughs> to do because it was just too complex. What made it complex is I've actually heard um, similar themes from a few other people who've been on the show who said that they thought that a loyalty program would work for them, but it ended up not working like they thought. So what do you think made it too complex or would you have done it differently or are you just like, we're not trying that again? Yeah, um, two things on the front end and on the back end. So on the back end, the code, to, it was completely custom designed, designed from a code using scripts on Shopify and it just it got really complicated. But on the front end, it was kind of confusing to the customer. So the, the program was essentially like, buy the razor and get a free lifetime of blades um, offer. And which sounds like a really compelling offer, but you know, there's always kind of, there's gotta be a caveat to that statement. So mm-hmm. it was like, you could get a shipment every quarter of blades, uh, just pay for shipping, or you could buy our like premium membership, which was like 20 bucks a year and then get the blade shipped to you once a quarter, which is a great deal. But offering them those two options was really confusing. And then, just the way we made them like kind of sign up for it was confusing. And like in general, we're going to try to launch another program in the future, but it will be far less complicated. Um, Like if you can't explain it in a sentence or less and have people get it immediately, then you've set yourself up for failure. And that's what we did. Like I've explained the program to people and they'd be like, okay, wait, but if I buy this, like, what happens? And I need my uh, Google spreadsheet out. Like which way will I save an extra dollar? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Things that have worked, we actually launched uh, international currency on our website because we do a pretty big chunk of business overseas. And 
um, that actually uh, increases conversion rates quite a bit for us. Yeah, I, I actually think it's very interesting diving into some of these tests like this because yeah. I'm sure other founders are thinking about similar tests. For sure. Very cool. Uh, so a couple general e-commerce questions. Now that you've been in the world for a while and kind of doing a bunch of tests and you launched your company, what kind of trends or patterns do you see coming down the pike right now, especially with everything with the pandemic? Like, are there any changes that you see coming in the future around e-commerce? I guess this is probably cliche, but but the only thing I know is that I have no idea what's, what's coming next. Um, <laughs> and I think there's a ton of opportunity in the future and a ton of volatility in the future for e-commerce. Um, I'm very grateful, number one, to be in the industry I'm in, to, to continue to operate and be uh, healthy and growing. I, I have friends in the restaurant business that, that cannot say that. So like, I'm very mm -hmm. bullish and, and grateful for the industry I'm in. I'm, I'm not planning on changing anytime soon. But at the same time, I think consumer behavior um, is going to continue to be like challenging to kind of forecast this is all, you know, people say this all the time on Twitter, but like, I just don't get the fact that our stock market is so high and, and our GDP is so low and so many people are out of business. So like, to me, you know, it's like, okay, when is this, like part of me is waiting for the other shoe to drop and when is this all going to come crashing down? And the other part of me is like, you know, e-commerce is 30% of retail now. And like, that's not showing any sign of stopping anytime soon. So I, I don't know if that's a direct answer, but in general, what I'm doing is I'm doubling down and, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm building processes and teams for growth. So we actually just left our longtime marketing agency that I had a great relationship and, and love and really enjoyed working with. And it was really difficult to leave them. But, you know, the main reason I, I left is like, I'm convinced the brands that are super nimble and able to react and adapt really quickly are going to be the ones that survive and, um, you know, thrive in, in this environment, in this, you know, volatile environment. Um, so whether Facebook CPMs are up or down or, you know, what's going on, um, I think we're just going to be really flexible. And, and part of what I'm doing to be flexible is building more internal teams to, to move quickly rather than just being, being a bit slower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's such a great point. And I think a lot of other companies are probably starting to think about that too, especially around like being able to move quickly and not having costs that are, you know, recurring for like the next three years that you mm. can't get out of or, you know, long-term contracts and even around like not relying on just a single manufacturer yep. and being able to kind of like move around if needed. So definitely being more nimble will probably be how a lot of companies are thinking about this going forward. Yeah. And it's tough because at the same time, you also, I think, and we started the call off kind of like this, it's like, you have to have keep overhead low at the same time. So you've got like these competing priorities to like mm -hmm. be able to move fast um, and have an internal team, but then also not like have a bloated internal team that you just can't respond. You know, your overhead can't respond quick enough to any kind of, uh, you know, unforeseen events. Yep. Yeah, completely agree. All right. So the lightning round brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I will ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Patrick? I am ready. Cool. So if you were to start a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be? Uh, okay. I know the answer to this one. I want, <laughs> and this is, this is no offense to you at all. All right. I'll try not to be offended. I want, I would start a, not like a one-on-one -on -one podcast, but like a round table debate style podcast with like roughly mm -hmm. three to five people. Yeah. Um, and I, like, I want vigorous, like, 
you know, vitriolic, I don't know if that's a word, but debate. Like I want people that are like so ingrained in their opinion that like they're willing to fight other people to the death about um, what they have to say. And and the, the topics would be all e-commerce or retail related, you know? Okay. Um, so anyways, that's what I would do. I feel like I see that happening on Twitter right now. Yes, <laughs> it's Twitter in podcast form. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah, I see all these like people getting very angry about stuff with certain e-commerce or Someone calls something like D to C and they're like, that's not D to C. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, we at Mission have done roundtables before, but they're usually with like three CMOs and then one of us hosting it. So it does not get that heated. So I'd be very interested to see how your podcast goes. <laughs> yeah, it would be a requirement for yelling to happen. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds great. Uh, what's up next on your reading list? Um, let's see. I just downloaded uh, ben, a book by Ben Horowitz and it's, I don't remember the name of it, but it's about building culture. Oh yeah. What is that new one? Don't remember. Um, but it's all related to this kind of transition I'm going through right now is what I call the transition from founder to CEO and, and like focusing less on doing things myself and focusing more about delegating and building a team that can accomplish things without me involved. And so a huge, huge part of that is culture. And I have no clue how to build good culture. So I'm going to learn yeah, from the is best. It, um, what you do is who you are. Yes, that's it. Is that new or okay, is that yeah. old? Yeah, that, that one's his newer book. I was okay. listening to it on Audible and I like it because it ties in history along with building a culture, but it's like, here's what, you know, happened a long time ago and why these themes are still relevant. So good. I so you, recommend that one you as liked well. It? That's good. Yeah, I thought it was great. Okay, good. What's up next on your Netflix queue? Oh, I don't really watch a whole lot of Netflix. Um, no, nothing. Everyone always starts by saying that. And then they're like, oh, wait, I just did this. I just watched this whole series. You know, it's funny. We'll turn me, me and Jennifer will turn on Netflix to like watch something new. And we always default to just watching The Office. <laughs> it's like, hey, that's a good one. That's yeah. a good go to oh, to keep you smiling. I, I will say we did just start. Um, we dug up an old DVD set of Seinfeld and now we're watching Seinfeld right now. So Ooh, nice. Yeah. Pulling out the DVD. That's yeah, awesome. the DVD. Blu-ray. Blu-ray, though. Yeah. Yeah. Got to be. Yeah. What app do you enjoy most on you most on your phone? What app? Um, I use Twitter probably too much. Um, yeah. It's a good it's a good thing and a bad thing. A lot of the good things that have happened to me over the past year have been through connections on Twitter, but it can also be a time suck. Yes, I agree. All right. And then the last one, uh, what is a favorite piece of tech that you use or are trying out that's making you or your team more efficient right now? More efficient. Um, well, we're trying out a productivity app called ClickUp. You ever heard of it? Uh, I think I have, but tell me a little bit more about it. it it's like, uh, it's kind of like a monday.com or a, an Asana. Mm -hmm. So like project management, task management. And um, I've never found one I like or that works. We've tried doing it in Notion before, although I love Notion. Yeah. Um, so we're trying that in ClickUp. I don't know. We'll see. I like it so far. Cool. Yeah, we'll have to check that out. Yeah, we use Basecamp for almost everything, but I'm open to other things. Yeah. I don't know that I'm a huge fan of Basecamp. I could never get it to work for some reason. Yeah, it is a little a little high when it comes to like starting up and mm. teaching the team and everyone learning from it, but it gets better. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been such a fun interview, Patrick. Thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find out more about you and Supply? Uh, you can find me on Twitter where I spend most of my time. Uh, my handle is sounds like canoe um, because my last name sounds like canoe. It's Patrick Cadu. 
So you can find me there. And that's really where I spend all my time. And then our website is supply.co. Um, go, um, you can see our company and all of our products there. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much. And have a great day. Thank you. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.